This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech Onsite Hydrogen. It's official. The hydrogen economy is here. The global transition to clean energy is gathering momentum, and it's clear that hydrogen will play a critical role. Biotech offers modular, scalable, and rapidly deployable hydrogen production systems through sales, rentals, leases, and gas as a service to customers worldwide. If you're interested to learn more, visit biotech.us to find out how Biotech can help you produce low-cost, low, or zero-carbon hydrogen today. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I am Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Senior Associate in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at the Rocky Mountain Institute, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who's calling in from London. On today's episode of Everything About Hydrogen, we are speaking with Niels Arna Baden, Senior Vice President of Strategy and Public Affairs at Green Hydrogen Systems. GHS is a Danish company founded in 2007 that is a leader in the production of modular electrolyzer systems. We are delighted that Niels made the time to sit down with the EAH team to talk about GHS's tech and their strategy for growing the green hydrogen ecosystem in the future. Before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at at about hydrogen. Also, if you are looking for more EAH content in your life, the team at Hydrogen Media is excited to announce that our very first episode of EAH Deep Dive was published last week in the EAH podcast feed. Deep Dive episodes are created and produced in collaboration with leaders in the hydrogen industry and are specifically focused on some of the most exciting innovations and announcements in the sector today. The first episode features our conversation with the co-founders from Anapter by Taya Cohen and Jan Eustace Schmidt. So if you haven't listened to it yet, be sure to check it out. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, guys. Good to see both of your smiling faces, and it's always lovely to see that Patrick's camera is all of a sudden working, and that we get to have him join us from what appears to be his uh, skateboarding teenager's bedroom. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's it. Like, like I, I got a new laptop, and I decided to upgrade my apartment to have a skate park built in. You know, it's been a year, Andrew. You got to get yeah. your exercise. On that's that. right. That's right. Half pipe. You got a half pipe or a quarter pipe in there. Well, it's quite eco-friendly, isn't it? Now he's on a skateboard, right? I mean, isn't that the next right. thing that they're going to make electric, electric skateboards? What's that, Marty, Marty McFly, Back to the Future? I'm a bit more of a purist, man. You know, you're going to self-powered. This skateboard is powered by his own sense of self-satisfaction. There we go. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> How are you doing, Chris? Oh, not too bad. It's uh, there is there is light at the end of the uh, the tunnel. The bars are open. The restaurants are open. Non-essential shops are open. I don't think anyone in London seems to be following COVID rules, from what I can tell. Um, <laughs> they're just getting cold outside, which is quite strange um, as a as a thing to watch. But yeah, I mean, you know, life is is returning. I think we're all trying to figure out when we can fly without being quarantined. Um, so that's a that would be a fun, fun exercise. And then there was like a bit of a, is COP going to happen? Isn't COP going to happen? And then there was like a rumor it was going to get canceled and they were going to make it all virtual. And then that rumor was quashed. And now there's like a thing of, 
Are they going to restrict the numbers because they don't want tens of thousands of people flying through Glasgow? So, you know, we're having all these fun conversations in the UK at the moment, right? Breaking news. What is the latest, Chris, on on COP26? Uh, Well, officially, uh, this news is what everyone knows it is, which is that it's happening and people will go and it will be wonderful and people will make lots of big announcements. Um, And which day day is the CEO of Proteum Green Solutions headlining? Whenever I can actually find a way to get there at the moment. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting one because I think they are like trying to get their heads around how does, um, how does it work in a pandemic if you've got red zones and amber zones, which is this UK government thing about who's allowed in and where you're allowed to go. How does that work if you're then trying to have like a global climate conference and you're supposed to have, you know, like NGOs from all over the world and businesses from all over the world and, you know, politicians and their entire staff, like it just, you can't, you can't really then have tens of thousands of people, right? So I, I'm not quite sure we've seen the end of this particular conversation. But um, tune in next episode, folks, for an update. That's right. That sounds. That's. We'll keep you guys posted as things develop. Your COVID nineteen Glasgow correspondent, Chris Jackson from <laughs> London, dialing in. <laughs> we. Uh, but speaking of sort of weird places to open an office, although Glasgow is not a, that especially weird. Uh, only other thing for me, Andrew, is we now have a protein office in Kerfilly in Wales. So that's quite Whoa. exciting. So we've got our second office just outside of Cardiff now. That is news. Okay, is news. I was going to ask. I was going to ask where in Wales, but I guess Cardiff. That's probably. Yeah, I thought I would just that, help beat you to the point there. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, so it still doesn't mean anything to me, but I know that Cardiff is a city in Wales, so I've got that much. Actually, it is a place. Yeah, that's that's yeah, a good start. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Well, guys, uh, with those updates in mind, uh, who do we have on the show today? Let's go to Jackson. Why don't you answer that one? Uh, sure. So today we have uh, Niels Arne Barden, um, who is currently the Senior Vice President and Head of Strategy and Public Affairs for Green Hydrogen Systems. Uh, he was formerly the CEO there and then um, has sort of moved into a more high-level strategic advisory role as uh, part of the funding round and, and bringing on a new member of the team. So the company itself is is yet another very successful um, Scandinavian clean energy company. It's a uh, predominantly alkaline electrolysis manufacturer um, from Denmark. Um, it's been around since sort of, uh, I think early 2000s, um, and, and has some quite exciting partnerships. So doing some work with Orsted, doing some work with AP Molomersk, raised quite significant amounts of funding. Um, it is, uh, it is interesting, of course, Everfuel is Danish. Um, obviously Nail is famous Scandinavian business uh, in the hydrogen space. So there does seem to be a bit of a theme, um, amongst sort of the Scandinavian countries in having sort of world leading hydrogen business and certainly Denmark. Um, also interesting, you know, given that you've also got Vestas and Orsted that are there. So there's definitely like a clean energy hub. So it'll be exciting to hear a little bit about the technology and why it's different. Um, and also interesting to just kind of, you know, maybe plug in a little bit about how the space and how the sector has kind of evolved over the period because Niels has been there for, you know, a decent period of time. So, you know, I, I think we forget that sometimes a lot of the people in the hydrogen space are relatively new and you know i think we have to be honest guys we're all probably a bit new relative to some of the faces in the sector um you know and so actually that's always really valuable too getting that perspective from people who've kind of seen you know the first wave and various iterations of that and or even just the end of the first wave and people now who've been with us through this latest iteration Niels Arna, thank, thank you for, for, for joining us today. I suppose perhaps you can kick off by giving us a, a little bit of a, 
an introduction about when the company was was founded and what what it's focused on, but also maybe a little bit about yourself as well. My pleasure. Yeah, I would like to do that. Um, Green Hydrogen System was funded in way back in 2007. Uh, some idealists in the central part of Jutland, where there's nothing much more than sheep and uh, and, and grass, uh, got this fantastic idea. They were working with a group of engineers uh, who did uh, fuel cells. Um, and they literally kicked it off, like, you know, from one day to the other, got the idea, got some funding, and started up doing electrolyzers. When they found out it wasn't just doing electrolyzers, it was a bit more complicated than that. They hired uh, uh, Jörn, who's still our CTO uh, today, as the first guy in the company. He was hired in in 2008. So basically, we've been in this business for 14 years. Uh, we did nothing else but electrolyzers since day one. Um, we did actually, we did only R&D for 10 years. I joined the company in 2014. Um, and at, at that time, we were still a small bunch of uh, six people, uh, five engineers and me. I'm not an engineer. So basically, um, I was hired in to find out what to do about the, both the company and the technology and would this ever happen. And I have to tell you that in, initially, I had my doubts, again, remind you that um, at that time, there was no market. Uh, there was a lot of uh, in- interest and talks, uh, but no real market. And uh, But I found that the technology was actually interesting. I have a background also from energy. Uh, another came from a regional energy company and knew some of the pains that we had and heard about hydrogen as a coming solution to that. So uh, I thought we should give it some time. And we did. So we actually basically tested the solution for, for, for more than 10 years, you could say. Um, and uh, in, in 2017, we launched the first Hyperwide a series electrolyzer commercially uh, we sold the first system delivered to sweden and since then we have uh, commercialized the, the platform and we today have a yeah are providing the electrolyzers as a commercial product my own background i, I as i said i have a degree in marketing and and uh, business administration from the university of aarhus um, i used to work actually i had my career started in british petroleum when i when the natural gas was not yet in denmark so we were working to get that onshore in denmark it's pretty funny to think that today i'm trying to get the natural gas out of denmark so it's a full circle um, career in that sense but in the meantime i've also been working in the telecom business and in in you know companies based on IT, so I come from a completely different world uh, in, in that sense. But my latest position before I joined uh, Green Hydrogen Systems was from a, a regional energy company uh, where we did the energy management uh, for international uh, companies. So uh, that's my background. I mean, it's, it is quite sort of interesting to see sort of uh, Denmark as, as such a sort of hub for, I guess, all of these sort of clean technologies. I also have to say, I mean, I think credit where credit is due, the Danes probably are one of the best organizations in the world for rebranding. I mean, a former BP gas guy now is a green <laughs> guy and uh, the former state oil and gas company manages to become the leading green energy transition company. I mean, right. you know, I think right. BP and Shell probably roll in their graves every time someone says that Orsted is a leading clean energy company when they think, my God, that wasn't too long ago when we looked quite similar to uh, the former Dong Energy as it was. Um, (laughs) It's a good point. It's a good point. Yeah. Um, So, so, you know, you mentioned the company's been going since 2007. Maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of a sense of where you felt the competitive advantage in your technology was, because I guess um, to, you know, and I, I put my hand up here too, to many people, the alkaline electrolysis space is often characterized as one where you know, uh, there's an assumption that, that we've already done a lot of innovation in this space. You know, it's a relatively old basic technical concept. You know, we've had alkaline systems for a very long time. So I think people aren't so familiar with kind of where 
actually, technically speaking, you can improve on the technology, what actually mm. is unique within different types of Alpine systems. So yeah. maybe you can kind of talk us a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, based on the experience we, we made in the first year, so basically Jan made in the first year, so our current CTO and the guy who was the first employee, um, was that the Alkaline was, was, I mean, predictive in the sense that it was mature technology, it worked. You have um, thousands of stacks running around the world on alkaline technology providing uh, hydrogen every day. So uh, if we wanted to develop something, it should be based on a, on a technology that was in a sense mature. And basically that's that was the, the idea. So what, 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 what he started and his team started to look into is to how, how we do improve it. You know, the deficiencies being, you know, the space taken up by, a, by, a, by an atmospheric electrolyzer, you know, the lack of, of response to operating dynamically, stuff like that. So basically they sat down and made a list and say, we're focusing at the renewable energy market because that will, that's, this is where this technology will really be become uh, important and, and, you know, uh, uh, a key for, for the, the transition to a renewable energy-based system. Uh, energy system, sorry, and um, so they simply made a short list of saying what what would it require, and one of the main thing, of course, is guess what? Renewable energy is uh, you know fluctuating. It's it's you know going up and down, uh, and uh, we needed to be able to accommodate in a in in our electrolyzer that we could run dynamically. Uh, and, and another point was that pressurized. We need to get the space down. We need to be able to, you know, to have uh, electrolyzers, large electrolyzers uh, that that does, you know, take up a football or two, a two football field or two. Um, a third thing uh, um, was basically another, you know, uh, idea was the modularity. Uh, again, if if and again we saw that this would be big, but you know, what is big is that one big unit or is a number of big units? And we saw that the require flexibility, again, from renewable energy would actually require that any installation, even uh, hundreds of megawatt, would have to be able to respond quickly and be able to, able to actually run up and down. So those were some of the major features that we uh, that we actually built into the system from the very start to ensure that we can run uh, uh, the electrolyzers from a, a load as low as 16% on the single unit and up to 100% in less than five seconds. Um, so in a sense, uh, Jan was very inspired by the PEM technology uh, that had those you know abilities um, and pressurized. Why pressurized? Because practically all uh, applications after you know you produce the hydrogen will require some sort of of, uh, of pressure, and we saw that the value chain with focus on that it would be uh, you know you would save the first step in any compression, which is the you know a very expensive step. Um, and again, uh, since you build it up in the uh, in the process, uh, it's nothing it's nothing that costs you additional energy. So uh, so. Um, we early had on had a uh, had a focus also on the uh, uh, cost that the at that time called we call it the total cost of ownership, and one important part of that um, whole thing is of course the efficiency of your ability to uh, to convert electricity to hydrogen um, at the highest rate. And uh, with our electrode technology, we do have that very high efficiency. But we have another thing, and again we're in control of this process ourselves, is that by in increasing the current density, we can actually produce the same volume or even increase the volume of hydrogen produced uh, from from the from the from the same hardware. So you have a certain capex and we can actually increase the output with at least 50%. Uh, and we can keep on doing that for some time. And then means having a much higher output per unit. Um, so those are some of the things that we were actually developing way back in 2009. Um, 
and up and on until 2015, when the first uh, high-provide electrolyzer platform was ready to to uh, uh, to, to really be tested uh, long-term before we then started selling them in 20, 2017. I think I think following on from that that kind of um, kind of innovation pathway and development pathway that you you just kind of outlined, I, I suppose one of the interesting kind of follow-on questions is around some of your strategic partnerships. And, and and what role they specifically play in, in helping support the business and how how those uh, kind of might evolve in the future or, or what future partnerships uh, are, are planning or leading towards maybe? Well, I mean, from the very start, also when I entered the company in 2014, it was pretty clear that, that once this would uh, this market would start happening, it would be probably happening at a tremendous uh, pace uh, because, you know, the the need for the technology is so obvious that, that uh, we just thought that it would be uh, happening very fast. So the scaling has been one of the, the things we have been focused at uh, from the very start. And... Um, you could say working with partners has been a very, I think it's a very maybe Scandinavian or at least a Danish thing that that uh, why not try to team up with some of the guys who need the technology and try to understand how they look at it, how understand how they want to use it and, you know, develop together with your with your customers or your partners. So we saw, you know, you know partnerships as being really important for for the growth of the company and for the acceptance of our technology. And with the type of partners we have, we have, uh, f- we feel we have uh, had, a, you could say, the buy into the technology we actually offer to the market, and and uh, and we have a number of, of very positive uh, partnerships where we, where I think it we are, we give and take, right? Uh, it's not only us learning; uh, our partners also learn from us how things work, what you can require, what you can't do, what you can achieve. And I think that's uh, also my experience from other from other industries that if you work together with customers like that, they become real partners, and you get a very strong position in the market. Uh, we also saw that uh, a market is a diverse thing. I mean, a utility company will have different requirements than from an industry producing large quantities of uh, ammonia, for instance. So again, for us to becoming an expert in each segment wouldn't happen. Uh, we couldn't do that. So we saw that partners would also be, you know, by choosing partners or finding partners in 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 different different market segments uh, we would get you know somebody who would be experts and would have natural inroads to these markets also to these uh, companies in in that market segment and they would bring us the best so we could actually you know d- deliver to this because you can't be an expert in everything we can't be an expert in you know uh, electrolyzers for all industries but if you have the right partners they can be the experts. And if you have an electrolyzer like we did, uh, where we ha- were focusing also on the versatility, trying to have, you know, an electrolyzer that will deliver to any application, um, you will be in a very favorable position. And I think this is where we are actually seeing ourselves now succeeding as well um, in taking and making that move early on in our, in our entry to the market. One of my questions actually a little bit here then is given that the company was around since 2007 and you mentioned that, you know, you had sort of your own concerns, I guess, at the time around sort of what's the market going to look like? It was so early. Um, I guess one of the relatively new things about Denmark was that it was such a leader in the early renewable space that it was coming up against some of the early challenges around integrating solar and wind and what that was doing for the great world, notably wind anyway. Did you kind of have a very clear sense of what type of applications in those early days made sense? And did that influence your decision to work with certain partners or uh, was it a bit more random? I mean, I guess this is always the thing, right? With hindsight, you know, I suppose you can say whatever you want, but, you know, at the time, 
how much of it was luck versus strategy? <laughs> I know it's a very good question. I mean, I mean, it, it, early early days, uh, the, the the first application we could sort of see that would would start to take off was was the uh, mobility with the you know the hydrogen fueling stations, obviously. Um, and uh, and again, we were a bit like. Um, and again, with the versatility of our unit, we, we're not sort of depending on it, saying you can only move into a certain segment. We could, so basically we said, well, our solution is pretty ideal because it can actually do the hydrogen on-site. So we actually pursued the mobility market. And you can now say, looking in hindsight, as you say, we weren't maybe that successful at the time. Uh, we did actually manage to sell a few applications uh, uh, to, in Sweden and in Denmark for this market, but establishing a partnership, we, we didn't really. Uh, but but to you can say it is also a bit of a lock, but but again, it, I would, it would be fair to say at least in 19, uh, the wind industry, for instance, really came forward and said, look, we, we, are, pre- we are ready now. We, we, we need to know more about what you guys are doing. Uh, and that sort of clicked immediately uh, with, with with a number of companies in in that market. And again, you know, we're just in the middle of of wind country here, so um, so it wasn't difficult. And we speak the same language. And uh, but but basically, yes. I mean, uh, this this was quite of a I won't call it luck uh, because uh, again, the more the practice you, the more the luckier you get. But but we established good contacts early on with with the wind industry, and um, so so that led to to where we are today with some of them. But we're still looking. I mean, it's it's not a, you know there's there's still segments where we again because of the versatility of our, our our solution we haven't seen limitations to you know other industries places where it won't work no uh, because the purity of the hydrogen is so high we can go into the mobility is no question about it you know so so uh, but again we need to build the the, the partnerships and again we're still a small company. And um, we do see that that we needed to put put efforts into this and and work with our partners uh, seriously, so we can't jump in all, jump in all directions. So it has to be, you know, uh, yeah. Let let's let's you know grow the partnerships we have now and 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 see where we, where they will bring us, and we will have eventually taking on uh, take on uh, new partners as well. So I'm going to dive in with the next one. If Patrick, you wanted to jump in. Go for it. So obviously partners come in many shapes and sizes, and I think most of the partnerships you've been describing so far have been, I guess, more on the kind of strategic, how do you get to market type partnerships. Um, maybe you talk us a little bit about investors. So um, obviously the company's been, like many companies in the space, doing very well in raising money. And and in December, AP Muller Maersk came in. Um, you know, Maersk has made a lot about sustainability plans and goals. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about why Maersk decided to invest, if, if you're able to do so, and maybe kind of how you see that experience of having kind of a corporate strategic investor coming in maybe influences how the business plans to sort of raise for the future and, and how it sees its future in terms of funding and, and whether it's a standalone, a listed or or like many electrolyzer companies these days, seemingly part of a bigger, bigger engineering entity. Yeah, interesting uh, question. <laughs> Um, well, first of all, I would say we are immensely proud uh, that we were, were were able to attract this type of investment from from AP Miller uh, Holding, and we also see this as a huge vote for of confidence in our technology, and in the market potential. So, um, so we are excited definitely to be to be uh, to be part of 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 the future of such a prominent investor and. Uh, and that to share our vision with hydrogen as the important future green energy for for the future. I mean that's 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 for sure. I can't comment too much on on a lot of other things, but but as you also know, uh, I'm sure that, uh, funding is a constant race. Uh, it seems. <laughs> 
for our business. And and uh, so, but I mean, this is this is a fantastic uh, fantastic investor to to onboard, and uh, and we have a, a great. Uh, I mean, already seen a, a lot of uh, interesting uh, things happening uh, due to that fact. So so that's just very positive. Uh, I, I'm sure. I mean, it's again they're very outspoken on their on their plans and their thoughts on the future they ordered a methanol uh, ship as the first uh, thing here for to be delivered in 2023 i mean it's really a company that is so forward looking and uh, and again we just enjoy being part of that so so uh, yeah very very positive uh, move and and for us i mean again uh, a blue stamp we think uh, of the company and our our technology so I think moving moving maybe back to the back to the technical side and uh, just I suppose well maybe not quite technical but but in terms of the shape of the market as it's emerging what what do you think the kind of the split between the various kind of um, electrolyzer technologies is likely to be and you know what expectations would you have around the evolution over time yeah i mean we have we have um, I, I would start to say that uh, we're looking into a market where we actually believe that there will be a need uh, and a request for all the technologies available uh we don't disc- uh, you know we don't count anybody out uh, uh, not even i mean uh, technologies which are not there uh, already um, I think that that would be that would be uh, that would be uh, stupid actually um but of of course, uh, we chose what we chose because we think this is uh, the best possible uh, solution for the moment on all aspects uh, of things. Um, but full respect for for PEM technology as well as SOEC, and uh, so you know, it's it's not really a question: do we see one or the other? We do see that. Um, if you take a you know a heavy industry where you where we, we need something to just work you know day in day out you know producing huge amounts of hydrogen, atmospheric alkaline I mean could look obvious uh, if you have the space for it and uh, you know it, why not uh, if you have an industry where you produce steam maybe SOEC would be the right thing to work with there. So we're not really disclosing or not disclosing what you're counting anybody out. Uh, we believe that all the technologies will have their maybe niches or, or at least uh, strongholds in parts of the of, of the market uh, and i think that diversity keeps us on our toes we we need to be uh, you know we we can't just fall asleep and think we have a leading technology we 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 need to be uh, focusing a lot on what what's happening around us and and a lot of things are happening so uh, the speed of development is is incredible uh, definitely so uh, no, I think it would be difficult to say which one would would lead. We obviously believe, since we chose that uh, that pressurized alkaline, would be uh, uh, able to take a very big position in in this market for all the reasons I mentioned. So um, that's that's our take on on the technology. So um, so that being the case, maybe you can talk about uh, one or two of sort of the larger projects, or or maybe even if not the larger projects, one or two of the sort of projects that you think are more interesting. Um, that kind of play into some of those advantages you've described about your system. And, and maybe the other piece that I always find interesting is how do they evolve? Because almost all these projects have like a first phase. It's kind of like almost like a pilot type demo phase or, or at least relatively small, but actually that's kind of a precursor yeah. to the bigger piece. So yes. what, what, what are you doing now, but what's the bigger plan for it? Yes. I mean, maybe one back a bit. Uh, um, the first deliveries we did were basically one-off systems, uh, standardized solutions in containerized solutions delivered at 250 kilowatt. 
basically. And and what we are now doing is we are now delivering on a, on a, we have an exclusive. I mean, on the uh, ski uh, skiver green lab or the green lab skiver project, as it's actually called, which is a very interesting, um, which is a very interesting project. And there we are delivering 12 megawatt solution for production of green methanol. So uh, you could say just before that, uh, we have uh, we have a solution we are going to deliver this year to Ørsted as it has been published. It's a two megawatt solution. So it's the first time where we actually put our modules together in a larger system and operate them uh, using our software to to uh, you know for 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 managing the installation. Uh, uh, one of the, the advantages I just briefly mentioned is the modularity of our system. And again, we don't really see an upper sort of limit. Uh, at least to to some extent, uh, where where this concept will will will, will take us successfully, uh, we can we can go up just above uh, 20 or even 30 uh, megawatt. What really depends here is on the type of application. Skiwa Green Lab is very specific because or special because we have altogether 80 megawatt of wind and and uh, solar power available in the spot. We're going to produce green methanol. It's not we. We are going to deliver our hydrogen to a company who will produce uh, green methanol. And fact is, those the limits in both sides of the system factors the number of wind hours and, 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 and solar hours and uh, the takeoff on the green methanol system where you have some limitations. Uh, it, it should be more than 100 kilo per hour. They should, should receive from us and no more than 200. And at the other end, you have a fluctuating uh, power supply, and I think that's that's the nature of the beast when you talk about real power to X. So this is, you know, really a power to X project where you have all the challenges you can imagine. So how do you make a how do you make a profit? Because we have to produce the the green methanol in a profitable way up there. It is a funded, a partly funded project, uh, but it is a commercial project and the the uh, the, uh, the asset owners are will be uh, commercial players uh, in this so so we're not looking at something that's built up and then broken down again after three years it's going to be continuously producing for hopefully the next 10 15 years so that is uh, it's, it's a good challenge and it's uh, it's uh, it's a fantastic uh, solution and it's something we will we look forward to to, to uh, showing we are in the final stages of designing the sites and and uh, doing you could say the feed the front end engineering and design of the project uh, uh, we're going to provide uh, to start providing our, our electrolysis up there and it has to be fully operational by 1st of October next year before that, we can, I say, practice a bit uh, on, on the fantastic project we have with Ørsted in the Avedere, uh power plant in, in Copenhagen. As I said, a two megawatt plant. And basically, it's the same thing. If you have more than one one unit of our electrolysis, there are you know self-contained units. You need to manage them uh, depending on the load. And in in in, in Copenhagen, in uh, in Ørsted, in the Ørsted project, there are two wind turbines, and you have the grid available, of course. And and we're actually going to to sort of you know work off work with different uh, approaches to try to see when do you actually you know when do you take the power from wind turbine? And what happens in reality? Sort of down to practical stuff. What what does it mean that you that you could tell how do you switch on to the grid if you go from the grid to the to the you know stuff like
like that. And how do you manage? It's going to be managed by software, not by people. Uh, and and that project is really a front runner for from for many of the projects we're seeing. Uh, we have a similar project in, in Holland uh, with the biggest uh, net uh, operator and network operator in in Holland, where it's more like peak shaving. So there we're going to take you know they have a shoot PV uh, installation uh, and we're going to peak shave. So so uh, so actually leveling out uh, the or balancing you could say their grid, and we see uh, you know. These are really fantastic applications, and you can basically say that all the knowledge we pick up here can be used in any renewable installation, uh, any renewable energy system afterwards. Uh, and and working with renewables is, is really is a challenge. So so given given that we've just talked through some of the the, the quite exciting live projects you have, uh, I, I guess the natural follow on question is is what what plans do you have for the company in the future, and 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 what's next? Yeah, well, we just moved to our new uh, facilities here in January. Um, we built uh, we built our our new site uh, completely completely from scratch. So as we wanted it, uh, but what we can now see is it's it's too small. <laughs> it's a positive problem, uh, but but just with as the with the way we uh, we develop our solutions, we think uh, we thought also when we planned the whole uh, uh, the new headquarter here, we planned that as a modular thing, so we can actually add modules and grow. Um, and um, and we are literally in in uh, in that uh, considerations now if we should uh, we should uh, take the next step. Uh, it hasn't been decided yet. I should say that immediately, but uh, as things are developing for us in the market, and uh, we are definitely uh, we definitely see that uh, we have to make a decision within a very short time from now. So scaling up, but not only you know growing the the. Uh, the footprint of our plant uh, and the capacity, but also scaling up the company. Uh, we're hiring, uh, we're getting in people, we're getting a lot of new people every month. Uh, so scaling up is, is really our focus right now. Um, scaling up on all key positions uh, and you know, bringing people up to speed is, is a challenge. Uh, but, but I mean, we just, uh, uh, as far as I remember, we just crossed 80 people. Uh, the first of April, uh, and I think last year about this time we were about 25 or something like that. So you can imagine that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of new people. I still meet people today. <laughs> I have to say hi, I'm Nils. Who are you? Um, uh, but it's good. Um, so scaling up, scaling up production, uh, definitely. Uh, we have made the first uh, layout here, and and we're capable of of uh, you know growing that uh, and delivering from this comp uh, from, from from this facility. We can deliver 75 gigawatt of, of electrolyzer capacity uh, in the setup we have right now. And and we I thought a year ago that was a lot, but now it seems like it's very little. And uh, but we we just we simply have to say well at least you know this is what we're doing now. We want to be very good at what we're doing. So scaling up in all senses of the word for the company is what we're in, in the middle of. Another very, I think, very important thing is that uh, given the, the fact that uh, the size of the, uh, the, the the projects we see out there is now growing from uh, double-digit megawatts to triple or even uh, even larger, um, also made us uh, consider uh, the setup we have. Uh, we always already uh, always knew that at a certain point we would we would want to you know make bigger units. We want to maintain the modular uh, solution. We we don't see an alternative there because we we think it brings so much. Uh, but uh, we also see the need for larger. Uh, modules. So uh, we are developing our X series, 
we have passed the first phases of development now. It's based on, and this is an extremely important thing, exactly the technology we have today. So there's a direct line from what we developed back in 2011 to 15 until today. So it's based on the technology we were, we know that work. So we put this together in a, a it's, it's a five megawatt uh, solution that fits into a 40 foot container. And uh, initially it will deliver, or it will be a capacity of five megawatt. Later on it will be a, the same size, will be a capacity of uh, seven and a half megawatt. And that's really, uh, we think, a, a groundbreaking uh, new thing to the market. And it means that we can uh, we can be, and we already are in, in dialogue with, you know, projects over and above 100 megawatt, because we have a very competitive situ- uh, solution for this. Uh, the plan is we will have the ex- first external pilot uh, running uh, uh, late ne- next year, and we will start, you know, take orders uh, next year on this for delivery in uh, 2023. Um, but again, we're true to our concept. We're, it's all based, as I said, on the technology we already developed, already tested for years, already have uh, operating around uh, different sites in Europe. So it's uh, it's very exciting. Uh, and we do actually see that we'll keep both uh, product lines. Uh, we believe that for, for, for solutions up to some 20 uh, megawatt, it makes sense if it's renewable energy, it makes sense to operate with the smaller units. Uh, and maybe even if you get up to, a, you know, 50, 100 megawatt, you would use the, the larger units. Uh, and again, maybe uh, just to em- emphasize it again, even these units will be pre-tested before they're delivered to customers. So we're always, you know, testing here. The test side we have made is pretty impressive, actually, where we will test any unit that delivers this, uh, that, is, uh, that leaves this place have been pre-tested and, and uh, ramped up and down uh, for, for extensive testing before delivered. So, uh, and we can also do that with our new X series. And that's a very important point. Fantastic. Well, Niels, really appreciate your time and for coming on the show. I think there's a lot of information we've got there to unpack with our listeners. I'm sure that there will be questions. There usually are. Um, so thank you. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. It was a pleasure to meet you guys. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Biotech Onsite Hydrogen. We all know the transportation sector is facing increased pressure to transition to zero emission solutions. And uh, to borrow a phrase from our dear friend Patrick Malloy, this is the thing. Hydrogen provides a clear pathway to decarbonization. Biotech offers its customers turnkey solutions for hydrogen supply that enable vehicle manufacturers, transit agencies, fleet operators, and logistics organizations worldwide to adapt to climate regulations and produce hydrogen for fuel cell electric vehicles at prices that compete directly with diesel. To learn more about how Biotech can help you produce low-cost, low- or zero-carbon hydrogen, visit biotech.us today. All right, gentlemen. Uh... Good speaking with Niels Arna. Big takeaways. Patrick, what were your thoughts? Yeah, like it's, 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 you know, a company that's been through it and has um, come through, you know, kind of two cycles of this now producing a, uh, you know, uh, alkaline electrolyzers and, and is now ramping up their kind of output as we see the kind of, uh, kind of commercialization of new projects. And, you know, very exciting stuff uh, around the uh, the opportunities with Orsted. Very interesting opportunities and a few other kind of 
locations around the world, but also it's an interesting kind of technology play, right? As in it's distinct from, you know, from some of the other kind of alkaline electrolyzers that you typically see when you Google it, right? Like this is meant to be a more kind of organized kind of modular style structure. Whereas, you know, the, the old school ones were huge and looked like an industrial facility. So kind of cool to, to learn a bit more about the company, to learn of the cool projects they're doing, to see that they're kind of generating new finance to to scale and, and broaden their appeal and, and to internationalize, which is which is great to see as well, because, um, you know, often we get kind of very focused on specific regions and specific projects, but um, it's, it's wonderful to see more more manufacturers in, a, in an electrolyzer space, right? Because we're going to need an awful lot more of these and an awful lot more production capacity in the next, in the next decade. Chris, what do you think? Um, well, look, I mean, there's a few different ways of looking at it. I mean, one way, I guess, of, of looking at this is to say um, it's, it's kind of, again, part of this, um, this sort of grand game we're starting to see where certain developers are picking a specific partner quite early off the bat. So Alster's obviously decided, right, well, Green Engine Systems is going to be our partner and there's several quite large projects they've announced with them and you could be cynical and say, well, they're both Danish. So that's kind of an obvious thing to, to point to. But, you know, um, these things are non-trivial. They are really important. And, you know, I think especially in the um, in the early stages of the market, once you have that kind of validation from a very, very bankable developer that's willing to go out there and, and build those projects, it makes a huge difference. And obviously ITM has benefited from that as well through partnerships with people like Linden, also through its work with Scottish Renewables as part of the Iberdrola family. So I think that's, that's quite serious. I mean, it's also interesting to me because, of course, you know, having some of its early projects in Denmark with Denmark's history of uh, onshore wind, you would expect that there's a lot of knowledge and capability. And, and, and Neil's talked about this in the understanding of how you integrate uh, these types of technologies with wind resources that are variable in nature and obviously intermittent. So uh, that is also quite important because I think the cliche is that PEM is the only way to deal with purely intermittent resources unless you have a big battery or unless you're grid connected and so you know i think neil's talking about actually about the sort of ability to ramp up and ramp down and and sort of that ability to play that sort of uh, facilitation integration role is something that most alkaline providers you know uh, don't tend to talk too much about they'll talk about it but it's not sort of a big part of the proposition in the same way that i think this was more explicitly so that's quite interesting um the unit size is still small it's worth sort of bearing in mind you know most of these systems that they've done today are still kind of you know sub one megawatt or maybe going up to two there was um two units recently sold into the uk that i think were just under a megawatt combined or around a megawatt combined so you know they're still very much kind of getting up to that scale. But, um, you know, I guess the nice thing a little bit like the Anapta story is that it's a modular system. And I think we're increasingly seeing this, um, you know, uh, flexibility of the electrolysis market to be able to say, well, we can scale actually very effectively because we've got a modular solution. And so you just plug in, play and you repeat uh, how that actually works longer term, whether that actually is the most optimum configuration once you get above a certain size and, uh, whether that advantage is a real or imagined advantage against sort of the more established players like the ThyssenKrupps and some of the Chinese companies that have been producing these massive electrolysis systems for you know several decades will be interesting to to see. But you know you could do worse than have partners like AP Molomersk and Orsted to get you started, couldn't you? I think I think it's an interesting follow-on point though. Quickly to that, which is that with these modular systems and the 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 ramping capacity. When you, when you start to pair them up with renewable resources, and we've talked about the, 
integration with kind of you know solar and wind or kind of you know and, and that kind of matching the uh, the kind of generation curve aspect there is something unique and interesting about these modular systems as part of a large scale production system as well so it's quite interesting to see this kind of break in a in in the market between the kind of maybe more traditional alkaline systems, which take a bit longer to ramp and, and you have to get to a certain threshold to get them up and running. And then they like to just run straight through versus these kind of rampable responsive systems, which, you know, maybe use them at a, at a lower end or a lower point and you catch the edges of the, the generation curve. It's quite, it's quite a cool little uh, dynamic that um, uh, could be uh, quite value additive, I think. Sorry, Andrew, you were going to say. So, I mean, here's maybe a question in, in you know, this is coming from uh, from the side of the industry that is uh, not as uh, familiar with electrolyzer technology, right? But what do we? There are an awful lot of electrolyzer companies or companies that claim to be joining in time to help scale this uh, to help scale the industry in the green. But fundamentally, guys, I mean, just brass tacks here. It's not affordable to buy electrolysis generated hydrogen for a lot of off takers right now. Right. I mean, so is there potentially a glut and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe that assumption is wrong. Maybe you guys think differently. Is there potentially a glut here where we're seeing uh, a lot of interest in hydrogen, a lot of interest in green tech. So green hydrogen, great thing to be involved in, but there are a lot of companies jumping in on that front in the electrolyzer space and not quite sure who's going to be taking all of this expensive hydrogen just yet. And that could be wrong. I, that's open to the floor. I know, I know my answer, but Chris, do you want to take a shot? <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. I'll have, a, I'll have an opening gambit. So, so you have to kind of split between two things. So you have to start with um, existing market for hydrogen. People forget, and, and they kind of look at it and they go, okay, well, there's loads of SMR and that's super cheap. So existing hydrogen in the existing market must be super cheap. And that's just a fallacy. It's just straight up wrong. So if you want to actually go out and buy fuel cell grade hydrogen in most countries, you're not paying anything close to one and a half dollars, right? I think the, the spread I've seen in markets like Europe could be anywhere between, you know, 12 euros a kilo to 60 70 euros a kilo and sometimes even higher right and you might see comparable in north america and other parts of the world too so the idea that people are getting gray hydrogen at super low cost levels for actually a lot of applications today just not true right um and now granted that then the question is well what are you actually using that hydrogen for and, and there's a lot of different things that fall into that and you know the overall market size of a lot of those industries has historically been perhaps quite small or stagnant that is changing so things like these kind of stationary or portable fuel cell applications you know it's, it was historically quite a small market it's getting it's growing quite fast now though it's a bit more interesting um, but you know, that's not the really sexy stuff. The sexy stuff people are talking about is I want to do 20 megawatt of electrolysis or I want to do a hundred or I want to do a gigawatt. And that's, I think, Andrew, where you're kind of coming on, right? Well, as you guys know, the only industries that are of interest to me are sexy industries. And that is a more interesting question because I think people forget this. People don't, if you go to a customer, an energy customer and you say, do you want hydrogen? They go, well, I don't know if I want hydrogen or not because Energy customers and people who work in the energy industry don't actually think often the same way. I think people in the energy industry tend to be very commodity driven, whether that commodity is electricity or it's hydrogen or it's bioenergy or it's oil or whatever. But actually, the industry is slightly different. The industry says, you know, the energy is a means to an end. 
I have a product or a service that I must deliver and I will use whatever form of energy vector and whatever technology I need to deliver competitively and reliably that product or service. And so they're almost agnostic to some extent about what the actual energy input is, as long as it meets the other criteria they have. And people forget that. So there isn't necessarily a demand for uh, hydrogen. You have to actually explain why this is helping them to deal with that specific problem. And I think that's the challenge, exactly to your point, Andrew, that um, a lot of the electrolysis companies haven't got their heads around. They're, they're saying, well, you could use it for this or you could use it for this. And that's why you build a really, really big plant. Um, and that's why I think the partnerships piece is quite important because the electrolysis guys don't really know what their market is. It's not the same as the early solar and wind guys where they were like, I just have to put this thing in the grid and someone else will figure that out for me. This is more complicated. It's like, well, it could be a bus. It could be a scooter. It could be a plane, a ferry. It could be turned into methanol. It could be a million things. I just I just want to make the technology and sell it to you and you go figure it out. So having a partner like Orsted then or having a BOC or having these strategic type engagements does help as a manufacturer, because then you don't have to answer the question of, well, what's it being used for? That's their problem. Isn't that the wonderful blessing and the curse of it, though, as well, which is which is that, you know, we have this 110 million metric ton market that exists, but actually how we swap or change that is 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 the question for whether you're talking about blue hydrogen or, or, uh, or green hydrogen. Like, I, I would say one thing about electrolytic hydrogen uh, more generally, which is that, you know, the attractiveness of it as a as a production point will improve as we see see solar and wind prices continue to drop and that's you know look folks make an, a huge deal about the the capex points and the capex reduction those are really important but there's a, a tipping point on the scale where they become rather immaterial and it's all about your electricity prices and um yeah look to be competitive you know you have to move this stuff you have to get it delivered that is today still a challenge for the industry to move volumes sufficiently to deliver these ultra low prices um but it is you know number one a, a, an earlier technology more nascent technology um and it is fast improving and and if there's production at scale we'll get prices down um but there there are projects and places in the world you know obviously the the projects in Saudi, uh, are in uh, saudi arabia and in australia where they've got the the kind of renewable resources and generation profiles where this gets very, very cheap, very, very fast. And um, the real question that we probably have is where else in the world and what other regions might fall next where it becomes competitive? And then how do you get to market? And that's the the question that we get to. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot more electrolyzer companies coming on board as you, as you flag, Andrew. I think the real question that we have is, you know, is there going to be that market, which is uh, which is what kind of what Chris is alluding to as well as like, what does that market actually look like and how is it integrated into everything else? So um, watch this space. But certainly uh, I'm sure Nell and ITM listening to this will have some answers. So if they'd uh, if you guys feel like uh, emailing, we'd be delighted to read out a response, I'm sure. Well, and I mean, not maybe not to flog a dead horse on this one. <laughs> We can move on, but, but you know, we point to a place like uh, Saudi Arabia having potential and, you know, huge projects around electrolytic hydrogen, but then all that electrolytic hydrogen is in Saudi Arabia, guys. <laughs> That's it. I, you flagged this, uh, Patrick, but you have to get that somewhere and you need to do it cheaply, 
that, you know, your endpoint will dictate what that cost is, but it will also dictate what your carbon footprint is for getting that hydrogen somewhere, right? So there, and I mean, yeah, there's all sorts of interesting ways of addressing that, but it does create some problems. We can move on. I just, you know, but this is... <laughs> it's, it's, it's right on the money, right? Like it's the, the logistics and infrastructure piece is critical, right? And, you know, it's why... You know, we talk to pipeline folks and gas, uh, natural gas folks. It's why we talk to uh, uh, heads up, hydrogen. heads up to uh, heads up to the listeners that uh, Snam will be <laughs> will be on the next episode to discuss exactly some of these questions, yeah. right? And, and we talked with uh, you know uh, hydrogen, well, hydrogenous, right? And 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 H two O, and we talked to loads of different companies because that is a a really critical piece. Um, Saudi Arabia. For some reason, I feel like they might be in a reasonably okay place towards, you know, an export-oriented energy industry. They might might do okay on that one, but yeah, like for a huge Fair other enough. for huge other uh, territories and countries in the world, that's going to be a brand new endeavor. It's going to be a challenge for sure. I've just I just flogged the dead horse again. So well, I mean, yeah, I, 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 it's it's always interesting. We don't we don't have to let it go. This 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 podcast is one big exercise in flogging a dead horse. So. Hey, it's a very much live and kicking horse at the moment. No, um, no, but no, look, no, no. Um, that's a good point. I think with all of this stuff, um, you know, what what is what is important here that I like at least about these kind of modular type plays is that they're trying to say how do we get around certain obvious problems, right? So. At the moment, what people don't like, but they can't seem to get around is the fact that most governments and most organizations don't want to say, I want to order a thousand vehicles in one go, right? Um, and a lot of companies say, I don't want to go 100% hydrogen tomorrow. So there's a uh, inefficiency there in that typically people like scale because scale drives down cost and therefore, you know, people encourage you to go bigger straight away because, you're more likely to get a better commercial project. And if you do lots of very, very small projects that are less commercial, it reflects badly on the industry and it gives the wrong impression because everyone's said from the beginning it's not commercial, but people think that that's a de-risking strategy. So one way of trying to resolve that problem is a modular type approach. You know, and one thing that is quite good about, you know, these sorts of uh, sort of applications is, you know, if you're in a market that really understands wind, really understands how you integrate it, can operate at very, very low levels, is modular, can be stacked. So you can start with, you know, a megawatt, but then you can build on on top of that. And actually, it's not uh, it's not like an old plant where, you know, uh, you'd probably take the single original one megawatt away and you just put a whole new thing down. Actually, you've kind of got built in resiliency when you're adding in the second, third, fourth. Um, and the fact that it's alkaline technology, so it's well known, it's well understood, it's got good track record, all helps as well, right? And I think that is a big part of the reason why, despite being, and maybe we haven't talked about this enough, you know, it wasn't until this recent funding round with other partners, um, you know, and some of the other funding rounds completed really in the last 12 months, it wasn't a big balance sheet company. And actually, we don't talk about this a lot, but a lot of the hydrogen sector is not comprised of big balance sheet companies. And so actually giving people that confidence that the organization that they are trading with is going to be around in 10, 15, 20 years time, or at least that they would have done well enough to be acquired by someone who will continue to hold those service contracts is really important, right? Um, especially when you're looking at project financing type approaches. So I think all of those things kind of count for it. Um and, you know, it, it, it's probably also worth pointing out, I think the smaller systems they have go as small as like 30 kilowatts or something, some of the small, really small applications. So that is really quite small. Uh, and that in and of itself has certain um, 
quite interesting technical elements that come with it. So we will see which ones kind of make it through. Again, it's containerized, which is another thing we've seen because our client historically wasn't really containerized. So that's another interesting and unusual trend. And I do wonder whether we will see at some point in the future, a lot of these very earlier, smaller projects, because they are containerized, actually will become quite a sort of sought after commodity because they're de-risked, they've paid off the original cost of capital, um, but actually you can pick them up and move them. And there will be these kind of ad hoc weird locations where actually being able to drop down one of these systems will be quite useful. Some companies are working on these kinds of solutions right now for all sorts of different technologies, Chris. Well, but think about the battery industry, right? Think about how many people business model was, I go and take a bunch of car batteries and I go take them out to Africa and I use them there, right? How, how long is it before people go, ooh, there's quite a lot of, you know, half a megawatt, megawatt, two megawatt electrolyzers sitting in Europe that a lot of them might have been grant funded and perhaps don't make economic sense to be here, but, you know, loads of places we could put it where they would make economic sense. And I do want to emphasize this because I can't help but emphasize this again. Cost is all about application and it's also about sort of delivered end cost. It's not about pure production costs. So if I hear another person turn around to me and tell me gray hydrogen SMR centralized is cheaper, I'm going to slap them because it's just the most frustrating and pointless conversation to keep hearing. No, but it's, 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 it's dangerous for the market because people are under a very, very dangerous false illusions. It is not the case guaranteed that just because you can produce somewhere at a dollar fifty that that means you're cheaper than other applications. And it's just not right. And it distorts things like the fact that actually a biotech distributed solution may for a very, 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 very long time be considerably cheaper than any SMR based alternative and many electrolytic because of the use case and because of geography. And similarly, the electrolytic hydrogen in many applications today is cheaper. You know, actually electrolytic hydrogen in the UK, even at small scale and refueling stations is arguably much, much cheaper than delivered gray hydrogen is from SMR already. So that's not even a, you know, hypothetical in the future, it just is. And so if I have another gray hydrogen advocate or blue hydrogen advocate coming with that, it just, it's just so frustrating. It's tedious. Um, and it doesn't help the sector either. Well, I'll tell you what, the commercial department at Biotech's going to be delighted with your answer there, Chris. Well, I'm a green hydrogen <laughs> developer. I'm pretty overt about the fact that I'm, 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 you know, I'm all any form of green hydrogen is, you know, overtly that's the, you know, it's what my company does. Right. So I'm not, I'm not right. uh, trying to be partisan about this. I mean, it's, Bipartisan about it, sorry. I always get confused with bipartisan about it. That's why they're going to be even more delighted by it. All right. I think that's going to do it for us, guys. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A big thank you to Niels Arnabodden of Green Hydrogen Systems for joining us on the show today. It was an excellent discussion. We cannot wait to hear more from GHS in the future. Thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Hey.